This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. So have you ever been going somewhere and gotten into a big fight? (laughs) So it it could be... Could be... uh, Trying to get the kids to school on time so you don't get that dreaded fifth tardy slip and a call from the secretary that shames you. I mean, it could be that. And uh, what started out as, please go brush your teeth, turned into, get your freaking teeth brushed and get into the car. But I'm not buckled up. I don't care. Buckle up on the way. Have you ever had those moments? You know? Yeah. Uh, Or trying to get to vacation. Vacation. Who doesn't love vacation? And we have a flight and that flight's in five hours. Now it's in three hours. Now it's in two and a half hours, and we're an hour and a half away from the airport. And what, what started out as this is going to be such a fun, relaxing vacation, an expression of our love, turned into get in the car, go, we're not going to make it. I remember when my wife's family flew out to California. They're from Illinois. Go Bears. They're from Illinois. And they flew out for our wedding. And uh, they showed up, and I went to give my sister-in-law a big hug, and she had her sunglasses on inside, and she just stood there like this. I, I, I hugged her side, and she just stood and tried to hug the next person. It was ice. And I said, hey, how are we doing? Uh, how's things? And come to find out, they almost crashed a few times on the way into Chicago, into the airport, almost missed their flight. They're running down, and there are eight siblings in my wife's family, and they're running down like the Von Trapps trying to get out of Germany. It was, um, it was horrible. Hey, just for what it's worth, I'm living on very little sleep right now, so... Um, but they lost all the joy in the journey. How about church? You ever, you ever tried to get to church and you're running late and we're all happy, we're all friends, uh, and then you get there and you're in a huge fight? You ever, I have. But this is why I joined our church staff. I leave at a different time than my wife now to come to church. Um, I know some of you have, and I don't, I, I'll try not to, like, I won't call you out. I don't know if you are right now, but every once in a while I'll see a couple that's like, oh, they're in a huge fight. You can just see it. You know, during worship, he's looking at this screen, she's looking at that screen. And then during the message, they're just sitting like this, just pulling up, like it's opposite magnets pushing. And then I'll watch somewhere through, I'll say something and they'll write a note. And I'd like to assume that they were writing something down about the brilliance of the message, but really they're just writing down how mad they are and they show it to each other. It's like, yeah, back at you, you know. And then somewhere in there, someone starts to lighten up and they move a little closer together. And by the end... They've got their arm. I don't know if it's, a, if it's a headlock, but I think they've got their arm around each other. <laughs> have you ever had those moments, honestly? Like going to church? Good grief, going to church? Yeah, of course we have. What is it? What is it about life? That in order to get somewhere, we miss the joy of the journey of getting there. Now, this isn't all of us. Some of you guys are super relaxed, laid back. We'll get there when we get there. We are relationally oriented people, but for many of us, Oftentimes we miss out on life in order to arrive at our destination. It's not just us. I would say that we actually, we live in a culture that I would say is defined by not just hurry, but a hurry sickness. I mean, we keep highway patrol officers in jobs because we speed everywhere. It's like, well, I was only going 10 miles over, and everybody around me was going 15 miles over. 
we live in a culture where hurry has become a sickness, and it's robbing us of joy in the journey that is life. Because if we're honest, life isn't made up of minutes. Life is made up of moments. And it kind of doesn't matter if we get there. Because if we get there, and we left wreckage between here and there, we've missed out on what it means to be alive. And could it be that hurry sickness is actually hindering our ability to love people? So in this series, Everybody Always, we're asking, what would it practically look like to deeply love everybody? Not just people we agree with, look like, think like, act like, but everybody. And we've talked about the reality that there are, there are always going to be people in our life who think differently, act differently, do things that we do not either understand or agree with. And what does it look like to love people who we don't agree with? Politically, we live in a world right now where if I disagree with you politically or if you disagree with me, it's like we cannot even sit in the same room together. And the crazy thing is, for Jesus followers, and if you're, if you're here and you're checking out faith, I'm so glad you're here. We created this space for you. For Jesus followers, it's so interesting that you have, if you're a, like a, a hardcore liberal, you have more in common with the hardcore Trump-supporting conservative than you do with someone who's not a Jesus follower who is a hardcore liberal. And yet, we, and this is outside of the church, but, but for sure it's true even inside the larger church, we have forgotten how to actually live in love with people whom we disagree. And yet the church is invited to be this multi-generational, multi-ethnic diversity and thought group of people who comes together to experience life with God and then allow that to flow through us into the world. And it could be that this sickness of hurry, and we got to get there, and what if we miss out? The, the FOMO, the fear of missing out. What if, what if fear of missing out is hindering us from actually loving on people? Now, I want to dive into uh, the life of Jesus today, and Jesus has these two interactions, and it's so interesting. I wrote this message before my family spent their time, our time in the hospital, and, but the message I'm teaching on has been one that I've just had to read over these words of Jesus over and over again in my life. I was up at 5.15 this morning after being up all night. Maybe you've had these nights where you wake up and anxiety and fear just pops up, and the best you can do is say, God, please do something. God, please answer. God, please give clarity. So I had this night last night, and then I wake up this morning at 5.15, and I just go back over this passage again, because in this passage, and the cool thing about Jesus is whether— you believe he is who he said he was, which is God in a bod, God in the flesh. Whether you believe that or not, you can believe that Jesus was a historical character. Romans wrote about him. The Jewish people wrote about him who lived, who died. He was crucified and he rose again and over 500 people saw him alive. I'll let you decide what you want to do with that. But Jesus has these two interactions with a somebody and a nobody. I have it all and to not have any. And he makes a choice that 
I would hazard to guess every single person in a large crowd of people disagrees with, except for Jesus and the nobody. And it tells us something about how we can actually love in a life where we do have 24 hours in a day, where we do have limited time, where we do have limited resource. Because honestly, if there's anybody who, who knew that their time was short, it was Jesus. Jesus predicted his death, and he predicted his resurrection, and then he pulled it off. He, you and I can't actually predict the end of our days. He could, and it was limited. We're talking just over three years. If anybody had a reason to say, I got to get where I'm going, it was Jesus. And yet he chose a different way. So I want to start off, the story is found in Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can flip there. If you have your phone, uh, you can click on it. Uh, as long as you're not on social media, unless you're tweeting a really tweetable quote, um, then you can. Or you can just look up on the screens. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by a boat to the other side of the lake. Let's just pause there for a second. This could be a long message, but we're talking about having space. Isn't it interesting that Jesus always went to the other side of the lake? So if you know Jesus, he'd go somewhere, he'd, he'd teach and he'd heal people. He'd get large crowds and they'd always want him to stay. Stay with us, be with us, stay here, give us more. And he'd say, no, I've got to go there. There's more people there. There's, there's unforeseen excitement over there. I love you here, but I love them over there. And he always went to the other side of the lake, always went to the other side, always went to the other side. I wonder how many of us, as we become comfortable in our faith, we forget that Jesus was always going to the other side, always going to the people who the, who the rest of the world forgot. Always heading over to a marginalized group. Always heading over to children who had no status. All, always going to the other side. I had a friend ask me recently in this series, he said, that's great. You're talking about, uh, you know, some really good stuff. And people say this to me regularly. Can't you just tell us what to do though? Just tell us what to do. Like you've got a platform of hundreds of people. Can't you just tell us what to do? And I said, no, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Christians, and we're going to talk about this next week. Christians, especially Christian leaders, we tell people what they should do all the time. I, I would say we should all over people. That's, that's all we do is we're always sh shooting. You should do this. You should do that. I got very little sleep last night. You should, you should, you should, you should. The problem with should is if I tell you you should do something, and then you do do something, and it turns out stinky, you're going to blame me. So rather than telling you what you should do, how you should vote, where you should go, what if I just said, look what Jesus does. Now you engage with Jesus. Read his biographies. Start talking. God actually wants to have a conversation with you. And then you ask him, what's the other side of the lake look like for me? Because my other side of the lake is in large part getting to talk to you fine people and trying to figure out ways to not speak to the 90% of us who already know God, but also keep in mind the 10% of us in this room on any given Sunday who are just checking out God. That's my other side. How do I do that? Maybe your other side of the lake is the other side of the office to that coworker. Maybe your other side of the lake is at school to that kid who keeps getting picked on. Maybe your other side of the lake is is somebody on a street corner. I don't know. Maybe it's the other side of the world. Look in the program. 
We're talking about serving people in India here. Maybe your other side of the lake is looking about how do I, how do I think globally even while I live locally? Jesus always went to the other side of the lake. That's not what I'm preaching about today, but I just had to say it because it's, it's too good. So he got to the other side of the lake and a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And one of the synagogue leaders, a man named Jairus, came and when he saw Jesus, he fell down at Jesus's feet. Now, a synagogue leader was the head of uh, what we would call the, a church. The trick is these synagogue leaders were almost always at odds with Jesus because they said in order to get to God who's up there, you've got to come through us and we'll take you to him. And Jesus said, no, God isn't some distant deity out there. He's more like a loving, perfect, powerful heavenly father. And you can curl up in his lap and you can talk to God yourself. And the synagogue leaders hated it because he took all their power and all their authority. And so they later on, these religious leaders even plotted to kill him. They had made themselves enemies of Jesus. Which is why when we read this, we should pause and say, why on earth would he fall at Jesus' feet? Because falling at someone's feet was a sign of ultimate respect. It was a sign of saying, you've got the power, you hold all the cards, I've got nothing, and I am coming to you. Please help me. What's going on here? That's a great question. And the next verse gives us the answer. He pleaded earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she might live. All right, moms and dads. That would do it, wouldn't it? If you're not a praying person and your kid gets sick, guess what? You start praying. God, gods, he, she, if you're out there, you cover all your bases. We look, uh, we look at the ancient world with all their we would call them idols, deities, and we think how primitive of them. But let's be honest, if your kid was dying and you didn't have any sort of, of belief in the one God revealed in Jesus, you're praying too. And his daughter, she's near death. And he's tried. Now, now this is a guy who's got everything. He's the head of the local synagogue. He's got power. He's got authority. He's probably got money. And the minute he comes and falls at Jesus' feet, the whole crowd goes silent, and you can hear a pin drop. Because the question becomes, what is Jesus going to do with this guy? Because this guy has made Jesus his enemy. He's taught against him. He's told people not to trust him. He's made him his enemy. What's Jesus going to do? What would you do? If your enemies, you have nothing against them per se, but they have made you into their enemy. What would you do if they came to you and needed help? And you were the only one that could help them. Well, here's what Jesus did. It says he, he went with him. That is good news. Jesus said, I came to reveal God to you. You know what God is like? God makes friends out of enemies. Here's why that's good news. We're told in the pages of the Bible that every one of us, by our choices and our words and our actions, we have chosen, we've, made, we've chosen to make God our enemy. 
that God doesn't want to be enemies with us. He doesn't want to have animosity with us. But anytime we say something or do something that hurts someone else, we're hurting God's creation. He made people in his image. And when we hurt them, guess what? We're hurting God's kids. And now we have made ourselves enemies of God. It's great news. And someone needs to help me out today that God makes friends out of enemies. Emily, I know you're here. You got to help me out. He makes friends out of enemies. And he went with him. And at this point, his 12 guys, the disciples, they're thinking, yes, this is it. If we can get the backing of the religious leaders, there's no telling how far this enterprise will go. Right now, we're a ragtag group. We've got no backing. We've got, we've got no money behind, very little money behind us. We've got no influence behind us. We've got Jesus, who's kind of a self-proclaimed teacher and rabbi. But if we get the religious leaders to back us, we're going to take off. So they're all like, woo, let's do this. And the whole crowd follows because this is the beginning of something big. It says a large crowd followed after him. And they pressed all around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And she suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She'd spent all the money she had. And instead of getting better, she only grew worse. Most likely this woman, uh, when she began her menstrual cycle, never ended it. It just went on continuously for 12 years. Now, the average life expectancy for someone in that day was about 40. So if she hit puberty about 12 to 14 and she'd had this for 12 years, that's half of her adult life she'd spent in this constant state. It was physically exhausting. It was mentally exhausting. It was emotionally draining And she became an an outcast. So she spends all the money she has hoping that the doctors will tell her something. What is causing this? Nothing. 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 She has no money. She has no hope. And she's an outcast because Jewish law said that a woman, when she was on her menstrual cycle, had to be separated from the larger community. There were two reasons— Part of it is that blood was part of the life force and the life source, and so um, people weren't allowed to touch blood. But the other part that we wouldn't find out until Louis Pasteur came along was that lots of diseases are passed by blood. And so God actually knew that and was trying to protect his people long before science would tell us that that was actually the case. But that meant that this woman could not be in crowds. If she touched you, you were now what they called unclean. You had to go and take the ceremonial bath before you could come back in. If she was caught going through these great crowds, she could be stoned for breaking the law. And it says, when she heard about Jesus, when she heard about Jesus, she had a choice to make. And the choice was this. Do I stay back at a distance? Because listen, I've prayed. I've prayed so much that God would heal me. You don't spend all your money as a Jewish person, without also praying. And I'm scared. What if I go to him and I get found out and I get called out? I could die. They could, they could kill me. At the very least, they would shame me and ostracize me even more than I already am. So I can hang back or I can dare to hope that maybe this teacher who I've heard about, this healer who I've heard about, this man that is full of compassion and grace, that he might be able to do 
something. So she snuck through the crowd, covered up, and she came up behind him, and she touched his cloak, because she thought, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was free from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around and he asked, who touched my clothes? To which the the disciples, his 12, and I imagine it was this guy, Peter, because Peter, if you don't know him, he's kind of a loud mouth. He always has an answer for everything. At once, Jesus realized his power had gone. Who touched my clothes? He said, and then they went on and they said this. Uh, They said to him, "Um, you see all the people crowding around? What do you mean who touched my clothes. And Jesus kept looking around because he knew that the power had gone out from him and he wanted to see who had done it. And this is the point where this woman's blood ran cold. Because while she experienced healing, she, now she, she was in the hands of God, of Jesus. What is he going to do with her? She broke every tradition. She broke every law to come and get this healing While she knows she's healed inside, we come to find out he knows she's healed inside. No one in this large crowd knows she's healed. They think she's a lawbreaker. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and she fell at Jesus' feet. And again, that's a sign. You you hold all the cards. You got all the authority. You got all the power. She was trembling with fear. Yeah. And then she told him the whole truth. 12 years of truth. 12 years of doctor's visits. 12 years of failed relationships. 12 years of laying in bed at night, weeping, crying out to God, giving up on God. It started off for the first couple years, her family would come see her, and then they probably stopped eventually. Maybe they set up a little spot for her over in the corner of their property, maybe not. 12 years of loneliness and isolation and pain. And we read that and we think, wow, they had this cool moment, but I wonder how long that took. 10 minutes? An hour? Two hours? Meanwhile, this whole crowd's gathered around and they're witnessing this moment here. Jesus doesn't actually even recognize them. He just sees her. Zoom out from them for a second. Imagine being Jairus. His daughter's about to die. He's so out of hope that he's gone to his enemy saying, please do something. And Jesus begins to go and things look good. And then this nobody comes up, this, this woman who's got no standing, who can't even go into the church. And not only does Jesus heal her, but now he's spending all his time talking to her while Jairus' 12-year-old daughter is dying while her life is draining out. How would you be in those moments? I can tell you how I was in the hospital. I spent hours trying to get appointments, trying to trying to make things move forward, doctor after doctor, schedule after scheduler this week. And finally, some scheduler said to me, well, you realize this is a hospital. We have a lot of sick people. And everything in me wanted to say, but my sick people are more important than those sick people. You know why? Because they're mine. 
but I watched this great video about immense patience last week. (laughs) So I shut my trapper keeper and I said, thank you, please help me. And my wife said, you're not going to get far being a smart aleck to him. She didn't use those exact words, (laughs) but she did call me smart. immense patience, immense patience. How do we love people? Last week, Bob Goff reminded us that we love people by having immense patience. But how would you like to be this guy? He can't be in this moment. He's picturing his daughter laying in bed, dying. How would you like to be the 12 disciples? Their hope of power and fame and glory like just went up exponentially. And now this guy's daughter is dying, and Jesus is spending time with a nobody. They're watching their fame and the power and their backing not only subside, but they recognize if things go bad with this guy's daughter, the pressure is going to ratchet up against us even more than it currently is. She told him the whole story, and he said to her daughter, which is this super intimate, I'm going to put you under my authority You're my daughter. If this crowd messes with you, they mess with me. Jesus had a way of covering the vulnerable. Daughter, your faith, and that word faith simply means you trusted enough to try. You came, you came. It's healed you. Go in peace. Be free from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking to this woman, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? And a hush fell over the crowd. And Jairus dropped. And the twelve are thinking, Ah, shoot, we are in so much trouble. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said, don't be afraid. Just believe. And it's interesting, he doesn't say what to believe in. He doesn't say, believe that she'll be healed. He doesn't say, believe that I can do a miracle. He says, trust. It's that same word, trust. Trust me. Trust that I'm here. Trust that I'm with you. Trust that if this ends in a miracle, I'm there. And if it ends in death, you don't even actually have to fear that. This is the amazing news for Jesus' followers, that God is with us when we're on top of the world, and God is with us when the world is on top of us, and everything in between. And sometimes he does the miraculous and heals, and sometimes he uses doctors to heal, and sometimes he doesn't. And our eternity is sealed, even if we're not healed here on earth. And it says that Jesus didn't let anyone follow him except for uh, Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a great commotion and people crying out and wailing loudly. And he went and he said to them, why all the commotion? Why all the wailing? This child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Why would they laugh at him? Well, because in Jewish—I'm answering my own question—because— In Jewish culture, you would actually, if you had authority, if you had some money, you would hire people to come and mourn. So these weren't necessarily close family friends. These were hired mourners, which is why they can go from weeping and wailing to laughing in a moment. She's not dead. She's just asleep. Why would Jesus say that? She is dead. They know she's dead. Is he mistaken? No, 
he knows she's dead. But here's the thing. We're going to find out she's 12. She's about to hit puberty. She's moving into marrying age. No one wants to marry a dead girl. Watch The Walking Dead. It never goes well. So again, here's Jesus protecting the vulnerable, caring for the vulnerable, wrapping his arms around them. She's not dead. She's just asleep. That's so funny. The Walking Dead. That's hilarious. That's so funny. Okay, continue. Continue. I was just... After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And he went in to the child and where she was, and he took her by the hand. He touched a dead person, which was totally taboo. But the thing about Jesus is when he touches dead things, he doesn't become dead. When he touches dead things, dead things become alive. That's, that's big. That's big. And he touched her, and he said, Talitha kum, which means little girl. Again, this super tender way to talk to her. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately she stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. She'd been alive as long as the other woman had been suffering. She was 12 years old. She, was, she had a whole life ahead of her. This woman had lost half of her adult life, and both mattered to Jesus. She came from a family of wealth and privilege, he came, and, and the woman came from very little, and they both mattered to Jesus. Everyone was completely astonished. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would make sense. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this because he wants to protect her future because he doesn't put her on display. He, he, he doesn't blast her for what was. He hopes for what is. And he told him, give her something to eat. And that's the end of these stories. You can see why maybe these stories have impacted me over the past couple of weeks and why maybe they've been speaking to me and maybe they speak to you. Now, if anybody had a, um, if anybody had a reason to be time-oriented, get to the destination, uh, the clock is ticking, it was Jesus. He had three and a half years. And yet Jesus had something that I call a theology of availability. And theology, theology of availability, uh, theology is just an understanding of God, a way to understand God and life. Theology of availability. Jesus was fully present with the person in front of him, while at the same time being available to the world around him. We, we do better at one than the other, usually. Um, if you find yourself stuck on your phone all the time, you're actually more available to the world around you than to the people in front of you. That just is the reality of it. But Jesus seemed to be able to be with this woman, hearing the whole story, while still ready for the world around him. Does that mean he didn't have boundaries? No, of course Jesus had boundaries. Lots of times people said, stay with us, come over here. He said, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I, I can only be in one spot at one time. When God put himself in flesh, he limited himself to one space at one time. So he had boundaries, and yet he was fully present and fully available. And I want to give some thoughts on how we might be able to create some space for availability in our lives. Not to tell you what to do, but to say maybe, here's some ideas on how you can create some space for availability. Ask yourself, What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst? We missed the flight. That's a bummer. You know, I lose my job because I'm late again because I stopped to help someone. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty bad. My kids get a fifth pink slip and the secretary calls me and shames me. That's bad. All you have to say is call my husband, okay? Or call my wife. They really want to talk about this with you. That's bad, but what's the worst? Listen, if we figure out what the worst possible thing is, then anything other than that's a win. 
And usually that won't kill us anyway. How about this? If you want to create for space for availability, build margin into your life. Time margin. Um, Emotional margin. Sleep margin. Sleep. We need to sleep like seven and a half hours a night. Sleep margin. If you're exhausted, you can't be available. Create margin in our lives. Relationship margin. Don't fill your life so full of relationships that you never have any space in case something new has to come up. At the same time, don't be so closed off from relationships that you never have any availability to anybody. It's margin. How about this? Choose to cheat. Here's what I mean by that. Remember the circle from week one? We had the circle from week one. And in it, I said, our circles of love actually have to start here. We believe that God loves us, and then we return that love to God. And then there's a love of self. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. The implication is you cannot actually love your neighbor until you learn how to love and care for self. And then God designed marriage to be the closest outpouring of those love relationships and then kids and family. And if you don't, if you're not married, um, you create family by choice. People who you choose to share intimacy with. If you don't have kids, you create family by choice. God designed life to work in community and then other Christians in the world. But here's the thing. If these two circles are getting the best of our time, and these two circles aren't getting any of us, we're failing. So sometimes we got to cheat. We got to cheat our job. I cheated my job this week. Hate to tell you, you all paid me and I didn't work very much. You know what I mean? Thank you. Um... But you know what? It's real, it's real easy when someone's in the hospital to know how to cheat. We all cheat when someone goes into the hospital. What about the everyday? We've got to choose to cheat. Here's one way um, that you can choose uh, to be more available. Uh, you know what these are? These, these are life suckers. That's what these are. Um, you want to create space to be available to the world and to other Christians? And could I encourage you to do what my wife and I are trying to do? And it's so hard because we're fully addicted put this thing down. Just put it down when you're home. Play cards. Have a conversation. Sit at the table and talk. That way, when you get pulled away, you are fully present. And there's some space for it. Choose to cheat. And then finally, see opportunities to love people as the destination. And job and school, and vacation, and taking a flight, and going to the hospital, uh, and in our bank account. Those are all just tools that God gives us to love people. What if loving people was the win, and vacation was secondary? What if loving people was the win, and having a bunch of zeros at the end of my bank account was secondary? Man, how would it change your day? I don't know. How would it change your week, your year? This is the stuff that God's showing me on this journey. Maybe he's showing you. This week, I want to experiment, and I want to invite you to. Allow yourself to be interrupted for the sake of love this week. One time. One time. Go somewhere. Allow yourself to be interrupted. Be on the phone. You get a tug on the side of your pants. Allow yourself to be interrupted for the sake of love and see if it doesn't create more of this thing that Jesus talks about, a theology of availability. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll end our time. Jesus, thank you for this picture. Um, Personally, thank you for hope.
for the hope that uh, what is oftentimes impossible through human means can be possible with you. Thank you, Jesus, for technology and uh, personally the hope that I'm finding in uh, doctors and chiropractors and the various things uh, with my family. Thank you, God, that you give people uh, skill sets to be able to serve each other. That's my personal prayer. Now, for us, God, thank you that you know what the day looks like, that you're not caught off guard by interruptions. Thank you that even though you had such a limited time here on earth, less than the vast majority of us will, you still chose to embrace availability, being fully present with the person in front of you and available to the world around you. Thank you for that picture of what God is like. Would you show us how to be a people who loves deeply and is fully available? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. See you back here next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.